Today's scripture comes from the book of John, uh, chapter 4, 27 through 42. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he, he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said no one uh, to one another. Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor, Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the Word. This is the Word of God. Good morning, New Hope. It's great to see you all. I, um, most of you know this, but I and a bunch of other New Hope folks came back to, uh, to Westchester, New York, and back to the United States um, between a week and a half and a week ago, we spent uh, the time before coming back in a place called Namibia, West Africa, and we had the opportunity to witness the mighty work of God there. And we're eager to tell you about what we experienced. We're eager to tell you more so about what God is doing there. We thank you for praying for us. Many of you did, and your prayers were answered. In fact, I can only speak for myself, but my expectations and my requests of God were only exceeded, far exceeded, more than I could ask or imagine uh, was done during that time that we were there in Namibia working with youth um, from a place called Havana which is an informal settlement. Um, some people might call it a shanty town or um, a favela in Windhoek, the capital of Namibia. So we're eager to tell you more about what God is doing there and so that through sharing with you all, we as a church, as a whole, can participate in what God is doing there. In the, in the words of Christ that were just read to us by Jihan, we can all enter into the labor 
that God is doing there through our prayers, financial support, through going out there and simply um, engaging in those different ways. But it's also great to be back here and back in the Gospel of John. We've been going through the Gospel of John now for months. Um, Today, we're actually stepping backwards. Normally, we're walking forwards through the Gospel, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Today, we're actually going backwards a little bit, and here's the reason for that. We were in John chapter 4, and we're looking at this narrative, the, the, the narrative of this interaction between Jesus Christ and an unnamed woman from Samaria. We're going through that section, breaking it up into different, part, into different, into different pieces, that whole narrative. And um, we went away from it for a while because we had a guest preacher come in. Some of you remember Steve Hong, who's our missionary out in Namibia, Africa, was here to preach to us. And so because he was here, he stepped in. It threw our uh, preaching schedule kind of out of order a bit, which is fine. But that means that today I'm going back into that narrative of the Samaritan woman to finish up that section of the Gospel of John. Let me just give you a little bit of background on what's going on here in John chapter 4 for those of you who have never read it or weren't around when we went through it. Jesus enters into a section of, uh, of the Middle East of modern-day Palestine called Samaria. And Samaria was a place that was populated not by Jewish people, at least not by quote-unquote pure-blooded Jewish people. It was populated by Samaritans. And Samaritans were a mixed, uh, uh, a boiling pot kind of um, uh, uh, population. Samaritans were people that were not considered truly Jewish by other Jews. In fact, Samaria was an area that most Jews would avoid. Jesus decides to go right through Samaria. Not only does he go through this, this area, but he also takes time to stop and engage in conversation with a woman. Not just any woman, but a woman that was an outcast in her community. So if Samaritans were already outcasts, this woman was an outcast among outcasts. Because of her sordid past, because of her shady history, she was looked down upon even by the people in her community that were looked down upon by everyone else. Jesus stops to talk to this woman. He asks her for a drink. They're by a well. And she wonders why he's asking her for a drink. They start talking back and forth. And what happens very quickly is that Jesus takes a very mundane conversation about water and turns it into a deeply spiritual conversation about life. He tells her that what he can give her is living water, something better than what's found in a normal well in the middle of the desert. He tells her that what he can offer her is living water. He can offer her spiritual life. She's confused by this, but she starts to get the message as time goes on. So we're going to jump in at the tail end of this story, starting in verse 27. And what I want us to see here as we go through this is that the Jesus, Jesus Christ, as he presents himself to us here, is a very challenging Jesus. He's a loving, compassionate Jesus, but he's also a, a, a challenging Christ. We're going to see that he challenges, first of all, our prejudices. That's the first thing we're going to see. Now, if you're, if you're in um, high school down to sixth grade and uh, you're here today, you should have gotten an outline. And uh, if you didn't get an outline, you can raise your hand and, um, and my daughter will run over and give you one. 
And if you're older than high school and you still would like an outline, I think we have some extras, so Noah can still come over and give you one. So the first thing we're going to see is that Jesus challenges our prejudices. But as we are challenged by Christ, we need the Holy Spirit to come and help us to receive what Christ has for us. So let's pray and ask him for that help. Lord, we ask that you would reveal to us here today what you revealed to that unnamed woman next to that well in Samaria 2,000 plus years ago. We ask that you would reveal the glory, the beauty, the power of Jesus Christ to us, just as you did for her. And some of us here, Lord, we would say we already love Christ. We're following him. Lord, would you reveal him to us again in a fresh way? Awe us. Draw us towards yourself. And for, and for people here maybe who, who don't know Jesus very well at all, they're not familiar with him, Lord, would you awe them? Would you reveal to our friends and our family members just how awesome you are? And we ask that they, like this woman, would be able to say, you, Jesus, are the Savior of the world. And we ask all of that in your holy name. Amen. Jesus challenges our prejudices here. That's the first thing we're seeing, verse 27. Let's just read this one verse. It says, just then the disciples came back and they marveled that Jesus was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Rabbis like Jesus, teachers, public teachers like him, didn't talk to women. It just didn't happen. In private, I mean, talk to someone close to you, but not publicly to a woman, a random stranger. Didn't happen. Jesus is willing to talk to this woman. Now, if Jewish rabbis like him would not talk to women generally because of prejudices towards women at the time and because women were not valued and were not respected as they ought to be, not only would he talk to a woman, but he talks to a woman who's an outcast, a woman who's not even respected by other women in her community, a woman who's whispered about, who's pointed at, who's shunned, This woman had experienced prejudice, no doubt, for years. Jesus overturns that. He sits down with her. He gives her time. He actually even asks her for a favor. And he begins to find out how he, and he begins to express to her his willingness to serve her, to love her. And his disciples are, it says here, they marveled. Other Bible translations say they were shocked. They were astonished. They were amazed. And yet they don't ask what's going on here. And we're not sure exactly why they don't ask, but they don't. Jesus, you see, was willing to talk to pretty much anyone. Biases were not a part of his character. So a few chapters back, actually just one chapter back, we see him speaking to a very powerful, influential religious leader named Nicodemus. He gives him his time, and now he gives this woman his time. They're on opposite ends of the social spectrum. Neither one of them gets preferential treatment. Both of them are loved. Both of them are spoken to honestly and compassionately, even though the way they respond to Jesus is very different. And what happens is that this woman then becomes a witness. She's so impressed by Jesus that she wants to go out and tell others about him. 
She goes to the people in her community that had shunned her for so long, and what does she say to them? She says, come and see. Come see this man. And these words, if you've been around here for a while or if you've read the book of John, they should sound familiar to you because they're the words that Jesus' earliest disciples used. In the very beginning of this gospel of John, Jesus calls disciples, people to follow him, and he says, come and see. Come and see who I am and what I will do. And then those disciples call other people and they say, we've just met this guy, Jesus. Come and see. Come and see. I think he might be the savior of the world. (laughs) She uses the same language as those disciples like Philip and others used at the beginning of this gospel. She uses words similar to John the Baptist himself, who's a witness to Jesus. She points others to him and says, you need to know this man. As you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see that Jesus consistently elevates people who are socially alienated. He elevates women. He elevates children, lepers, the diseased, servants. He gives time to people like tax collectors who are looked down on and hated. He has time for them. And that's why I'm saying he challenges us in our prejudices. And so I think a question that arises from all this is, who do you not have time for? I'm not saying who do you hate and despise, because maybe there's no one that falls into that category for you. But who do you simply think is beneath you? Who are you less likely to take a call from? This might reveal your own prejudices. We also see here that Jesus was not only a man who lacked biases, he was a man of integrity as well. And I don't want to skip over this because we see here um, Jesus interacting with a woman. He's just the two of them there in this public space. And what we see from him is deep respect and love, not only for this woman, but for other women throughout the Gospels. We're living in a climate now where I think what we're seeing so much of and we're hearing so much about is rampant disrespect, abuse of women in particular, and children too. Where maybe we're even getting start, we're getting starting to get used to this, used to the idea that men in powerful positions are typically abusers, or men in the highest leadership positions in our nation are guilty of things like sexual assault, sexual abuse. This isn't only true in the in the political arena. We've seen this in the church as well. I've lost count, frankly, of how many stories I've read about over the past five years involving pastors, some of them celebrity pastors, who have taken advantage of, abused, disrespected, and hurt women and children in their congregations. We start to think that leader, this is what leaders are like. You give people power, and this is what they do. Leaders use people. But what Jesus shows us is a different kind of leader altogether. He's the leader we all need. 
He's the leader we long for. He doesn't use those who follow him. He lays down his life for them. He dies for them. He serves them. You see, within this this upside-down kingdom of Jesus Christ, everything looks different from what we're used to. We're used to seeing people use power to abuse, and he does quite the opposite. I believe that part of what we should walk away from John 4 with is the sense that he is a leader we need. And if you are a leader in your home, in the church, in the workplace, then what you have here is a model for what leadership looks like. For what servant leadership truly is. I want us to see here that Jesus doesn't just challenge our prejudices. He also challenges our strategies. Jesus challenges our strategies. Let me see if I can explain what we mean here. Look at verse 28. It says there, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Then we'll jump down to verse 39. It says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. That was her testimony. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This conversation between Jesus and this woman leads to all-out revival. An entire community is transformed. We don't know how many people lived in that town. It could have been hundreds, it could have been thousands. We don't know, but what we know is that the town was never the same after Jesus arrived. This was a no-name place in an area that most people would avoid. Jesus chooses to go in there and do this kind of work. And I think that challenges our strategies. That challenges modern 21st century American church strategy. Here's what I mean. For the past maybe decade or more, there's been a movement amongst churches to plant new congregations throughout the United States, especially in center city areas. So there have been lots of endeavors to plant churches in places like New York City and Washington, D.C. and Seattle and Chicago, San Francisco and L.A., all these places that are really important hubs of commerce and culture. They're sociologically just really important cities. I'm really thankful for those efforts. It's led to wonderful things. It's led to the kingdom of God expanding in places that we would not expect. Many of us here have benefited from efforts to plant churches in New York City. Our lives would not be the same if that hadn't happened. Really thankful for it. And and, and part of that, that movement has been focused on this idea that if if we reach the culturally elite, 
with the news of the gospel and the word of God. If we reach the academically, financially elite, that's going to serve the kingdom really well because that will lead to a trickle-down effect of those culturally elite, powerful, wealthy people then affecting the many communities that they have influence over. So if you reach the most elite and culturally influential, you end up changing the culture downstream. Makes sense, right? I think Jesus would even agree with that. And yet the strategy that he employs here is quite the opposite. Jesus does not focus on the culturally elite or the academically accomplished or the culturally influential. Instead, he goes to this backwater town and talks to the lowest person on the social ladder in that whole town. And through her, he brings transformation and revival to the whole community. It's an upside-down strategy, isn't it? Now, I'm not saying that we should stop trying to plant churches in culturally important places. What I am saying is that perhaps we've grown a little imbalanced in our approach. Because of my own background, I've met a lot of church planters over the course of the past eight years or so. And I've often had reason to wonder, why does it seem that so many of these church planters have a heart for the hippest places in the world? It seems kind of coincidental to me that so many want to plant churches in places that you and I would love to go live. The best restaurants highest quality coffee, the best social life. It makes you wonder, doesn't it? Now, again, I'm not drawing, I'm not, I'm not trying to be suspicious of motives of each and every individual church planner. I just think that we've grown imbalanced in this. And I think we need to embrace this upside-down strategy of Jesus who goes into the places that are unheard of and undesirable to people who are undesirable and rejected, and he begins a world-transforming work there. For those of us who have just returned from Namibia, I think we saw a little bit of that. Get a little glimpse of that. The work that New Hope Fellowship is involved there through Agape Youth and in partnership with the We Love Africa Foundation is focused on ministering to the most vulnerable people in the country of Namibia. The poorest children in that place. But we do so because on the one hand we feel that God has called us into that and he's given us the opportunity and so we embrace it. But I also want us to do that with a high level of confidence. Not pride, but confidence that we are walking in line with the upside down strategy that Jesus Christ exhibits right here. We are doing what Jesus did when he walked into Samaria. It challenges us. And it reveals to us that Jesus' ways are often very much unlike our ways. They don't fit the model for, they, they don't look 
like wise marketing strategies all the time. And yet, the results here are undeniable. Thirdly, Jesus challenges our priorities. He challenges our prejudices, our strategies, and our priorities. Look at verse 31. It says here, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food, listen, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. As Jesus is sitting here talking to this woman, the disciples come back, and they're like, they're like moms, right? They're like, you need to eat something. Have you eaten something yet today? You need to eat. we got to get some food in you. And Jesus, as many of us have responded to our moms in the past, have said, I'm not hungry. Although he doesn't say, I'm not hungry. In fact, earlier in this narrative, it says that he sat down by that well because he was deeply fatigued. He probably was starving and thirsty, and that's why he asked this woman for water in the first place. While he's talking to her, the disciples had want off into town to buy food. They come back with, um, I don't know, they had like Chinese takeout, I don't know, they had sandwiches in a bag. They bring them back. He's not interested in eating any of them. Why not? He says, I have food that you, have, that you know nothing about. My food, he says, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me, to do the work that he has given me to do. One, one writer, he explains it this way. He says, despite his physical weakness, reaching the Samaritans was more important to him than eating physical food. You see, the work he was engaging in, connecting with all these people that were coming from this town to know him, connecting with all these people that were curious about him, took precedence over eating, even though he must have been hungry. That same writer goes on to say, Jesus' mission takes precedence over his comfort. Jesus' mission takes precedence over his comfort. I think that's, we can reframe that for ourselves in the form of a question. Does Jesus' mission take precedence over my comfort? Some have said that what's going on here, in a sense, it foreshadows what's coming later, the cross, where Jesus goes to a place of not just extreme, extreme discomfort, but a place of pain and shame and death. He lays aside his comfort. He lays aside. He's thirsty there at this well. He doesn't want anything to drink. He says, I'm going to minister to these people. He goes to the cross and says from the cross, I'm thirsty. He's thirsting again. And yet, and yet, 
He's willing to lay aside all those desires, all those comforts, in order to die for that Samaritan woman and for millions and millions of others. Jesus challenges our priorities. Food is what gives you strength, isn't it? Food is important. We all know that. But in Jesus' kingdom, food is secondary. What is more important than food? It's doing the will of the Father who sent him. It's doing the work that God had given him to do. And notice what happens here. Because he has these upside-down priorities, the woman's priorities shift as well. It says there that she, she leaves her water jar. She leaves the water that she had been gathering. She leaves her chores and her responsibilities, and she runs back to the town to testify, to, to explain, to introduce this mysterious man she just met. Some have said that this water jar would have been a really um, precious possession. Super important. The water jar is important because it brings water into the family. And water coming into the family meant food and washing and hygiene and it meant health. This woman had traveled all the way out to the well in the middle of the, the day at noon. It's hot. She's worked hard to get there. And yet she leaves it all behind, rushes back. You see, it seems that Jesus' priorities had rubbed off on her. Jesus' primary desire to reach these people in her town became her desire to reach those people in that town. She's so impressed by Jesus, she, she starts to see him for who she is, she goes back. To all those people, friends, if she had any, enemies and strangers, and says, come and see. Come and see this man who's told me everything I ever did. You know, it's funny, this woman didn't even really know that much about Jesus at this point. She knows that he, is, that, that, that he knew her story without ever even asking her for it. She knows that he was able to, to see her past and knew what her life had been like. She also knew that he was making these grand offers, offering her living water, spiritual life. Maybe he had said more things to her, but she didn't really know that much about him yet. So, so there's this simplicity to her message. You see, her limited understanding of who Jesus is doesn't keep her from going back to her community to introduce them to him. Sometimes I think we deprioritize this mission of introducing Jesus to other people because we feel inadequate for the task. We're too uninformed. We're too inexperienced. We don't know enough about the Bible or about Jesus. She didn't seem hindered by any of those factors. She says what she can. She says, come and find out this. Come and meet this man. He, he told me everything I ever did. You know, what she really experienced from Jesus during that time, and I, I, I believe that this is what must have truly moved her. She meets this man who's extraordinary, 
This man knows her fully and yet loves her deeply. This man knew her whole story, and yet instead of rejecting her for it, he draws closer to her. It's as if this woman is saying, I, I met this man, and he, he, he fully knows me, and yet he deeply loves me. I've never experienced anything like this before. I've been through so many relationships. She had been through so many. She was on her sixth. She had never met a man like him before. And so the question for us, of course, is, have you encountered the same Jesus who fully knows you and yet deeply loves you? I'm not asking, did you grow up in church or or do you go to church regularly? I'm asking, have you come to know this Jesus? Has he changed your life in the way that he changed hers? And if so, then you have a testimony to share. In fact, your testimony may even be more robust than than hers. You have a story to share with others. You can, like her, we can go to others and say, come and see this man. Come and see. Come and hear what he has to say to you. If you don't know him, then you need to meet him. And so the invitation to you is to come and see. Come and see a man who knows everything you've ever did and yet is willing to move towards you, to lay down his life for you, to give you what you most deeply need and long for, to give you forgiveness in the sight of God and acceptance with the God who made you for himself. New life, a new identity, no more shame and guilt, and freedom. Freedom from the guilt and the power of sin. Most of us know already more than this woman knew about Jesus, just in terms of raw facts. Will we prioritize this mission of introducing others to him? She plays this role of a witness beautifully. Hundreds, if not thousands of people listen to her and they come. Jesus challenges our priorities. And I think that we would be remiss. We'd be... It would be a huge mistake for us to walk away from this without having our own priorities rearranged. Remember, Jesus says, my food, the thing that gives, gets, sustains me. Some of us love food, right? I, I love food. I love it because it keeps me alive. I love it more because it just tastes wonderful and I just enjoy eating it. So it's the source of sustenance. It's also the source of like joy. Food makes me happy. Jesus is saying, my sustenance, my joy, my true deep comfort comes from doing the will of the one who sent me. Now, now here's how I think this applies to us. This same Jesus, later on in the Gospel of John, says to his disciples, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is you. 
He says, Lord, as you sent me into the world, I have also sent them. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are sent just like Jesus was sent. You were given a mission just like Jesus was given a mission. Later on in John 20, he puts it this way. Again, Jesus said to his disciples, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So as a people who have been sent by Jesus, can you say, my food is to do the work of him who sent me? Can we honestly say this? And if not, then we need to be able to say, we need to repent, we need to turn away from whatever it is that we're prioritizing, whatever it is that we're getting our deepest sense of satisfaction and comfort and sustenance from, whatever our food is, turn away from that and say, Lord, I want my food to be to do the will of you who sent me. We all know how hard it is to prioritize well at times. If you're a parent, you know all the time you're telling your kids, you can't do that until you do this first, right? You can't play the video games until you practice your trumpet or until you've done your homework. And many of us as parents, we need people to come and tell us that all the time as well. No, Rob, you can't do that until you've done this first. Prioritizing is hard. The Lord knows it's hard, and the Lord's given us his spirit, and his spirit will help us to align our priorities with Christ's in the same way that he allowed and enabled that woman to align her priorities with Christ. Is obedience to God just a matter of convenience to you? I will do it when I get around to it. I'm afraid that so often for us it is that way. When God, the one who sent you, tells you to do something, there's often a lack of urgency. Like, yeah, I'll do it eventually. So when God comes and says, listen, you've heard the gospel already. Repent. Believe the gospel. Be baptized. We hear that, and sometimes we say, I I think I, I will eventually not a priority. The urgency level is low. Or maybe we'll, we'll do part of that. We'll say, yes, I, I've repented and I believe, but the baptized part, I'll, I'll get around to that, Lord. I'll get around to it. I know you told me to do them both and you said them in the same breath, but I'll, I'll do the, the, the second part of that later. A kind of passive aggressiveness in our attitude towards the one who sent us. When, when, when Jesus says to us, be reconciled to your brother or sister, if there's tension, if there's sin, go and, and be reconciled, we say, yeah, that that's, seems important. I'll, I'll put that on my list. It's not going to be at the top, though. When Jesus says, love your enemies, when Jesus says, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together for the purpose of worship, Don't forsake, don't avoid, don't neglect these times to get together and worship God as a church. We hear that and we say, yeah, that seems important. I'll I'll consider that. Maybe at some point in my life I'll be able to live that out. Not right now, though. Too much going on. I don't think I can obey that command right now, Lord. 
we are deprioritizing the commands and the work of them of the one who sent us. And I think no command probably gets neglected as much as the command to make disciples. And it's an obvious one. Jesus Christ in Matthew 28 says, go make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them all that I've commanded you. That means that as a church, as individuals who make up a part of a church, our mission as sent ones by Jesus into this world is to help others know who Jesus is and to help them follow Jesus through baptism, through teaching, through involvement in the church. And we tend to deprioritize that, don't we? We'll get around to that, hopefully, when life gets less busy. Or when I get a little bit older, and I graduate from school. Or when my kids get older and I have more free time. Or when I retire, we just keep postponing and postponing and postponing. Jesus challenges us in those awful priorities. All of us, regardless of our season of life, are in a season of life where we are able, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to do the work that Jesus has sent us to do. Every single one of us. If you're single, maybe you're young. By single, I mean single like sixth grade up to single whatever age. Single student to single whatever. You are in a season of life. You are old enough and you know enough about Jesus to do the work that Christ has sent you to do. But what gets prioritized? I was reading some stats this past week about, um, about uh, video games. It says here that uh, in 2018, typically, your average 18 to 25-year-old video gamer plays around seven hours of um, video games a week. But this is the one that caught me. This, I thought this was so interesting. It says your average video gamer, 18 to 25, plays about seven hours of video games a week and spends another two hours a week watching other people play video games. That was fascinating. So, I'm not against video games in any particular way. If these stats were about, you know, playing croquette or making puzzles, I would, I would still read these stats to you. It doesn't matter to me if it's video games or something else. But I think it does alert us to something, that there are hours and hours and hours for many of us going into some particular hobby or interest or pursuit that if we were to even start to eat into that time, just cut it down by half or by two-thirds, we'd find ourselves with a lot more time to do the work that the one who has sent us has given us to do. The average Netflix account holder spends 570 hours a year watching Netflix movies. If you're not single, maybe you're married, maybe you have children, time is so tight, and yet the Lord has called you to do the work that he sent you to do. And the fact is that maybe the work that you should be doing and are doing and need to do more of is right where you are. If you're a parent, it's right with those children that God's entrusted to you. That's the harvest. that's That's the field. The time is so limited, isn't it? The number of times that you have an opportunity to speak the gospel to your children is limited. There's a ceiling. 
the number of opportunities that you will have to bring your children to this place to worship God together and to see you worship God are limited. There's a ceiling. The number of times that you will have to sit down and pray with them and for them is limited. And that ceiling is coming closer day by day. Will we prioritize it? Will we prioritize? In the end, my goal is not to motivate any of us by shame or by guilt. Some of us respond very powerfully to shame and guilt. We've grown up learning to do that. I don't want to motivate you with that. There are many better motives for why you can engage in this mission that God's given you to introduce others to Jesus Christ. One of them is simply that God may bring revival at any time and in any place. We have no idea when. I've been reminded in recent days that I thought that salvation was far off for some people in my life. And I was surprised to find out that it wasn't. That I was on the threshold of getting to see salvation visit my own home and other people around me. I had no idea. This is what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, you know, you, you think one has to see, you know, sow the seed, and then you have to wait months and months and months for the harvest to come. He's saying, look, the, the harvest may be right now. Right now. You're sowing seeds, hoping that maybe there'll be fruit in the future. That fruit might be today. We don't know. It might be revival in your family. It might be revival in the life of one person that you love. Or maybe revival in the whole community, in this whole church. We don't know. I think that must motivate us. I think that's the motivation that Jesus is offering here. He's, no one expected that walking into Samaria, they were going to see what they saw. His disciples probably didn't want to go into Samaria. What they didn't realize, it was a day of salvation. I'll give you one more motivation for engaging in this mission. It's life-giving and it's joy-increasing. Some of you know this, that in your, your stumbling, weak efforts to introduce others to Jesus Christ, you've gotten so much joy. It's been hard and you feel like a failure and you feel like you're not doing that great of a job, and yet it's life-giving, it's sustaining some of us, I think, live with, with, with very little joy in Christ because we're not engaging in this very important work of sharing Christ with other people. And to the degree that we do share Christ with others and speak of him to others, we will begin to experience more of that joy. That's why Jesus says, this is my food. No, this is my food. I live on this. When I see God work in the lives of others, it gives me strength and joy and sustenance. Let's pray. Lord, you've said that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. You've told us to pray earnestly to you, the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into this harvest. Lord, would you send laborers into this harvest? We know that we just plant seeds and we water, and you're the one who brings the increase. You're in charge of that. Lord, help us, motivate us 
push us and urge us to take on this amazing work that you've entrusted to us. And as we do it, Lord, would you increase our joy? Would you make us stronger in our faith? Even as we help others to know and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.